Well, good morning to you. Uh, if you're new here this morning, my name is Tony Hunt. I'm pastor here at LEFC. And uh, let me get you caught up. We have, since uh, the beginning of May, been in a series called Anchored. Uh, comes out of a passage in the book of Hebrews found in the scriptures that says we have this anchor called hope that allows us to be able to live life knowing that Jesus Christ is the answer for what we have when it comes to the difficulties of life. Life brings us a lot of things unexpected and throws us a lot of emotional and relational curveballs. And in the midst of those storms, if you don't have an anchor that holds you firm, then you will find yourself to be in a hopeless state. And we've looked at over the last few weeks that, that quite frankly, Hope, if, if, there, if it does not reside in you, hopelessness is the result. And hopelessness is the predetermined state of mind that causes people to stop living, to want to end things or to not be able to move forward. And maybe they, they, they stay alive by a beating heart, but they've shut down in their ability to interrelate and to connect with other people. And, in, and so in the first few weeks, we looked at one of the, the, the primary thing is we're all made to be relational, and relationships are often where some of our greatest challenges come from. And so they provide many of those points of, of where we're going well, and then all of a sudden things don't go well, and it's often connected to someone else and, and, uh, and the brokenness that might be there. So we looked at Yes, forgiveness. We looked at uh, making things work out by not just sweeping them under the carpet. And then we looked at, over the last few weeks, things beyond just the relational side, but the emotional side. Things as stress, anxiety, or depression. And, and so we spent time over those weeks looking at how stress and the pressures and unhealthy rhythms of life can cause pressures to cause us to cave in. Or if we choose to try to control all the things that are going around us that are hindering us, anxiety and worry starts overcoming us and, and looking at what it does it mean to trust in God's work to handle tomorrow in spite of what today brings. And then last week, uh, dealing with a, a very difficult issue of depression and its myriad of forms and and it's such a, a thing that people don't want to share but yet they need help and today we're going to continue in that journey I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37 and you'll be putting your finger there for a little while before I get there just like last week this subject that we're going to deal with today is so vast so large that, that it's going to take a while to get to where we can then apply Scripture to it to understand the framework of the struggle that is there. So just be patient, and we'll eventually get into uh, the text of Genesis 37. So as I shared the last three weeks, stress, anxiety, and depression are prevalent issues that we as a society are struggling with. But there is another issue that lurks in the shadows that has damaged so many people. This issue is not of one's own making, however, but rather harm coming from another. Abuse in its various forms has hindered or severely affected directly nearly half of our society. Let me say that again. Abuse in its various forms has hindered 
or severely affected directly nearly half of our society, which means then that the other half are affected, but indirectly. If half of the society has been abused in some form, then those of us who have not been abused are affected because we are interrelating with those who have been. So to understand just the framework, when I use the term abuse, let me give you a couple of working definitions. The first one coming right out of uh, uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary uh, is abuse is the corrupt practice or improper or excessive treatment of another or at the expense of another. Abuse then from another source, this organization uh, deals with a lot of counseling. They're, they're not an organization that I would necessarily affirm, but their definition I agree with, and it lines up and pulls in together many of the different definitions for abuse very well, and it's this. Abuse is a pattern of behavior used by a person to gain and maintain power and control over another. Let me say that again. A pattern of behavior used by a person to gain and maintain power and control of another. That is abuse. So I was looking at and preparing to teach on this. If this is impacting directly 50%, nearly 50% of our society, and then for affecting the rest of society, what are the statistics? What, what, what am I speaking to if I'm using those kind of lofty numbers? Let me just boil it down to just a few potential areas that, that maybe has affected some of you here in this room. If you have been involved in an intimate relationship of any kind, it says that one in four women and one in nine men have been, have been physically abused by that partner. So let me say that again. For those who have been involved with an intimate relationship with another, one in four women and one in nine men have been physically abused by that partner. That's just physical abuse, not any other forms of abuse. Let me go to another form of abuse, sexual. 29% of women and 22% of men have experienced some form of sexual abuse. It's kind of alarming, isn't it? When you start figuring a third of women and nearly a quarter of men have experienced some form of sexual abuse. Not all the other forms of abuse, just the form of sexual abuse. This statistic stood out to me. Nearly 15%, now you're saying that's a really low number. Wait till you hear what I'm talking about. Nearly 15% of all emergency room visits are due to domestic violence. Now, take any emergency room within 20 minutes of here. How many people do you think they see in an hour? Maybe about 30? 20, 30? Maybe, you know, it might be smaller depending on the size of a hospital. Could be more depending on the size of a hospital. But if that's the case, let's just go with the number 30 as a fairly likely number of emergency room visits. You're talking four people, five people that have walked in the doors every hour. And the reason why they're there is because of some form of domestic violence. I think we have a problem in our society. 
if these statistics are true. There are six primary forms of abuse readily acknowledged. Physical and sexual, I've just mentioned, but also there's verbal, mental, financial, and cultural, or as in identity. Now, I think you can probably make sense of all of the ones I've just listed, but let me unravel a little bit the idea of what cultural or identity type of abuse is. This is the idea that where you take a cultural norm or a cultural set of unwritten rules and you use it to your advantage, again, to create power and control over another. The most common form of this is religious, where you take if a particular religion is in control of a society and they use the tenets of that faith to manipulate and create power and control over another. That's how you read about groups such as Boko Haram that are in Africa where they took an entire school of, of 200 to 300 girls and took them and claimed it to be their right religiously. Made them their brides at age 11, 12, and 13. They say we have the right because of the cultural promises that they claim is inherent in their faith? Or how about this idea of, of the primary dress codes that are throughout the world that are, where there is abuse hidden from the rest of society claiming to be that according to the religious right? Even within Christianity, there are many who will use scriptures, in particular men, to abuse their wives by claiming you're to submit to me using the Ephesians 5 passage. And therefore, under that, they lord over their wives rather than looking at that passage where it says, and it actually begins with, we are called to submit to one another in that marital relationship. And then husbands, as having the headship, is called to then elevate, serve, and create a radiance to their bride. And by the way, without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. That is not an abusive context, but yet men will use that text to say, I am head, I am Lord, and you must do what I say. And they create abusive situations. Or they use the scriptures where, where they are parenting their children and say they have the right to do whatever is necessary to discipline their child, even in an abusive manner, using scripture to justify it. It's really sad, but I would say that in our county, this abuse is very common. In our deep spiritual heritage, how often have we set up such a strong system where leadership dictates what must happen, even at the cost of manipulation and emotional or mental or verbal abuse and sometimes physical We have a problem. It's about power and control. And you might think, well, it's not pervasive. We aren't struggling with some of the other abuses near like other parts of America. We're, we're a bit inoculated from it because of our strong spiritual heritage. Well, let me really shock you. LEFC 
has been partnering for a year now with a ministry located here in Lidditz. We've been chosen to be a little bit more silent about it for the protection of those that we serve. You see, there's a house within just a half a mile of where we sit now that serves women who have been human trafficked, sex trafficked, here in our region. And they are escaping that lifestyle, and they are being provided protection from their pimps, protection from their handlers, staying here in Lidditz as the first step of finding freedom. Two of the guests that they had about a year and a half ago, this story alarmed me. Two of their guests were girls who their handler or their pimp here in Lancaster County was their father, who was a pastor. Power and control is the source and substance of why abusers abuse. But it leads to some pretty big questions. If God is God and he is filled with power, and God is God and he is filled with love, and God is God and he is sovereign, how is it that such stories happen? It could cause you to think, is God powerless and truly not in control? Is he at the mercy of mankind? Some of you that are sitting here in first person, where you are the victim of abuse, or perhaps maybe your child or best friend was abused, your question is, where was God when my child or friend was abused? Or where was God when I was being harmed? Does God truly care? And if he does, why didn't he intervene? Will there be justice? Will this person be just, be justly brought to trial? Will they ever suffer for what they've done to me or to my friend or to my child? Or maybe the question isn't necessarily towards God and you're just sitting here just like, you know what? I, this isn't about God with me. I just want the pain to go away. Will it ever go away? These are fair questions. They're human questions. And I think God understands why we ask them. To address that, I, I just want to go through some scriptures, and they'll be up on the screen, but to just give a little bit of a, a picture of that the Bible does speak to these things and God is invested. He's not handcuffed. He is operating now. But there's some biblical realities that we can, that if we understand will help us answer these questions that might come to us. First of all, God said that abuse would increase in time. Look at the scripture that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and it's part of 
eight verses, and I'm only going to give you a portion of it, but listen to what it says in this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Happening? People will be lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. And by the way, the list keeps going. Check, check, check. Is there anything in this list of even what I've just written that we couldn't say is not only evident in our society, but prevalent in our society? So keep in mind, God has said this would happen. He foreknew this would increase over time. And you must also know that in Scripture, there are so many texts where God says he will bring about justice. The oppressor will be judged. And I wanted to just highlight, because I don't want to spend as much time here, but I just want to highlight what Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, where it says, God speaking, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. All men, all women will be brought into account for their actions and deeds here on this earth. Justice will happen. So yes, abuse will increase. Sin will increase. But justice will not be thwarted. Third thing to understand from scriptures is that God is actively operating on behalf of the oppressed. It may seem that, well, if it's growing and it's prevalent, God's just sitting watching it all happen while we self-destruct. But the reality is that's not true. We have in Psalms many texts where God is sharing his compassion towards the oppressed. But I wanted to choose one verse that would really stand out to you because this verse is Jesus speaking and proclaiming his role. So since we're on this side of the cross, this matters a lot. So listen to what Jesus says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. The role of Jesus is to take all that evil has damaged inside of us, whether it's been out of the cause of our own evil desires or being victimized by the evil desires of others. God has sent his son Jesus to help bring healing for the oppressor and the oppressed because he wishes to change both. Next, it says that God still is powerfully in control because, again, recognizing that the natural question is, is he just watching it all happen? Consider this text in Romans chapter 8 where it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, can you control that? Can you have power over death and life? To some degree, yes, but not really. None of us know when we're going to die. And can we control angels and demons? 
No, but can they do a lot uh, against us? Yes. So for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, nor the present or the future, which we can't control or have power over, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. So basically saying, all things that we cannot get power over or control over could ever separate you or I from the love of God found in His Son, Jesus Christ. That love will supersede and go through the darkest of evil. So God is not thwarted by evil. God is not hindered by evil. God will trump all evil. And that's why he gives us the entire biblical narrative to understand evil began in the garden and there was a journey of several thousand years before he shows and shows his cards and it's how he's going to redeem mankind through his son Jesus Christ. But then he says Jesus will then build himself a family, a church, children of his own and he will do so over thousands of years of which we are now 2,000 years later experiencing the love of God in the midst of a depraved humanity. Now, putting this in context to understand for all of us, for especially for those who have been harmed, hurt, or hindered by abuse, how is it that we can help them see that, yes, God is at work, as he says he is, that he is loving on them. He isn't powerless. He isn't out of control or lacking control, but rather he is invested and there is a plan that is going to be accomplished. The best way I can offer that picture to you is to actually go to a story, a narrative, a true story that is showing that God is deeply invested into the lives of not only the abused, but the abusers. So that's where we'll begin in Genesis chapter 37. We're going to look at the story of a man named Joseph, who is one of the 12 of the sons of Jacob, also known as Israel. To get a little context, we're going to read the first 11 verses, and then I'll give overviews over the next several chapters. So beginning in verse 1, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, at the land called Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about his brothers. Now Israel loved Joseph, Joseph more than any of his brothers because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, context is pretty easy to figure out here. If you've got 12 brothers and one of them is being exalted and esteemed more than the others. It's, of course, going to naturally lend itself towards jealousy issues, pride issues in relation to the other brothers. So that begins. And the first form of abuse that they begin with is verbal. They says here, he says, they hated him 
and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, brothers being brothers, I'm sure they did not hold back. And I'm sure he had to hear it. Now, he did not choose for his father's love to be the way it was. That was the father's choice. But he suffered for his father's choice. Now, Joseph's not clean in this. Let's continue reading. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We are binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose, rose up and stood up while, upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this matter in mind. Now, you say, what did Joseph do? He's not clean in this. I mean, think about it. You've been given a dream. He was never commanded to go tell that dream to his brothers. So in choosing to tell that dream to his brothers, he had to know this isn't going to go well. He's already being mistreated. He's already being verbally abused by them. But now he receives this dream and he tells them. So it's begging for a problem, right? It's begging for a lot. Now, I, I just want to ask for some, a little bit of transparency here in this room. If you are a man who also has a brother, would you hold your hand up and keep it up? All right? So keeping it up. So you are a man and you have a brother. The next question is this. Put your hand down. If you're, no, 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 not yet. Just, in response to this question, put your hand down if your brother or you has never said anything unkind to create anger towards the other. Some of you are liars. I saw some hands come down on this side while looking over there. You can put your hands down. Now, put your hand back up if, I gotta be quick on this, some of you are so quick to respond. Put your hand back up if the words said between the two of you were worthy of killing them. Nobody. Of course not. Nor was Joseph worthy or had done anything worthy of about what's to happen to him. Had he erred? Probably. Not wise. If nothing else, it's not sin, just not smartest thing in the world to tell not only one dream, but two dreams that say your brothers are going to bow down to you. Not a good idea when you already know the relationship's fractured. All right? So the worst thing Joseph did was tell the reality of his dreams. I do believe it was part of God's plan because it was going to teach them about God's foreknowledge later. But in this moment, the only thing you can say Joseph was guilty of was not being wise. All right, so that's not worthy of death. So what ends up happening over the next several chapters, first of all, the brothers conspire to kill him. 
As part of that conspiring, they decided, well, instead of killing him, let's sell him. So he became human, a human traffic victim. In Scripture, a man becomes human trafficked victim at the hands of his brothers. He gets sold into slavery. He goes to a country he's not been to before. He goes then into a house, a slave owner's house, and he begins to serve. He goes, serves faithfully there for, for some time, and then the slave owner's wife falsely accuses him of adulterous intent. And he gets thrown into jail again under a false accusation. So he is sexually victimized. He is accused wrongly. And he has been sold into slavery by his brothers. Would you say he's been abused? Yes, significantly. He's been beaten. He's been sold. He's been sent away. He's been lied about. His father thinks he's dead. And now he's in prison not because of anything he's done, but rather he's in prison because he actually chose to not experience the invitation of this woman who wanted to have a sexual relationship with him. So he did the right thing and he's suffering for it. So my question then becomes, where was God in Joseph's life for these 13 years? 13 years. I mean, think back what's happened in 13 years just in your lifetime. And imagine for 13 years, those same 13 years, that you're constantly suffering over the abuse of another. You are in a land that you do not belong. You are in a prison that you did not deserve. Would he not have the right to say, Where is God? But let me highlight some things that are actually in there. Genesis chapter 39, verse 2. This is when he was sold into this slavery, and he's in Potiphar's house. Look what it says in verse 2. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Yes, while he was a slave. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his, as he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, he made Joseph the leader of his household. All right, so here it is. Joseph's not, you, know, you don't see anything about this communication from God saying, don't worry, Joseph, I've got this. No, you only see that the Lord was with him and gave him favor and helped him prosper. Now, I want to go to the end of chapter 39. Now he's in jail for having done the right thing. But look what it says at the end of verse 20. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So that the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who held, uh, who was held in prison, and he made them, and he made was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Again, notice 
You don't see any massive or masterful statement from God. You just see the Lord's favor that, that while he's in prison, you could easily say, well, is Joseph even realizing that God's with him? Would he say that God's with him if you were to talk to him in the prison? Is God really with you? I mean, you're in here because you did the right thing and now you're suffering for it. There are people in this prison that deserve to be here, but you don't. Yet it says, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of everyone there and gave him success. Yes, in the prison. This is his life for 13 years in a nation he didn't belong and in a prison he didn't, prison he didn't deserve. 13 years of abuse, yet the Lord says, I was with him and blessed him. Did Joseph feel it? Well, here's the answer. Genesis chapter 41. I want to go to verse 51. Some things have now happened. Joseph is now the vice president, if you will, of Egypt. He is second in command to Pharaoh. And, and he is helping the nation uh, be able to prepare for a coming famine. As part of being blessed by Pharaoh with this role, Pharaoh gives him his daughter. Joseph and this daughter of Pharaoh have children. Look at the name he gives his first son. Verse 51, it says, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, which means to forget. What is he forgetting? Look at what he says. It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Now, what do you mean forget? In this case, not hold it against them. It's the same thing as basically like forgiveness. Forgive and forget. It's not that he lost the memory of his family or lost the memory of his troubles. It was that he was not holding against God his memory of his family or holding it against his brothers, for that matter, what they had done. He had forgotten those things as harm against him. And that's why he names his firstborn son Manasseh because he realizes God helped him. God helped him forget. Then look at the name of his second son, verse 52. The second son he named Ephraim. And he said, it is because, which by the way, Ephraim means twice fruitful or double fruitful. And it says, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So Joseph acknowledges, I'm still suffering because I'm not where I want to be. I want to be back home with my family. But I'm here in the land of my suffering, but yet God is giving me favor and fruit. So there was a miraculous work going on in Joseph that it helped him avoid becoming bitter and broken down to an unhealthy place, even at the hands of great abuse. Now, I want to acknowledge the final point is the reason why this was all going on. You'll find in, in, verse, in chapter 50 that Joseph was doing this because God was preparing him to not only save the nation of Egypt, but also to save the future nation of Israel. All of this, God was bringing about or allowing to happen so that it could fulfill the ultimate purpose that Joseph would deliver his family. So let's look at this. Chapter 50 in verse, in, in verse 12, or 15, I'm sorry. 
In Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. So now it is 39 years after the original dream. So the, the two dreams that he shared foolishly with his brothers, it's now 39 years later. So the land has, been, has gone through its seven years of a famine and or seven years of fruit and now it's seven years of famine and and the nation is beyond it and his father Jacob has passed away the brothers now think now that our father is dead Joseph will now create retribution and we'll all be killed they're afraid so we pick it up there in verse 15 when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph has held a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of of many lives. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The abusers were riddled with fear. I mean, it's 39 years later since they sold their brother into slavery. All this time wondering if God was ever going to bring judgment upon them. 39 years of living with guilt and shame. 39 years for the victim, Joseph, living with having been harmed, having been wronged, having been lied about, having had his reputation uh, being uh, uh, totally slandered, having been separated from a loving father. A lot of reason to now use his power and authority to bring judgment on his brothers. But instead, he responded to the fear of his brothers with forgiveness and says, who am I to place myself in God's seat and judge you? And then he says what was most profound about this entire story from chapter 37 to chapter 50 when he says this, what you meant for evil, what you meant for evil, God has brought about his greater good. It was evil what they did. It was sinful what they did. And they suffered for their sin by all the fear that they've been riddled with. And yes, even Joseph suffered for their sin for having been the victim. But God was bringing about a greater plan that could not be seen. And I would offer to you that Joseph had no clue for most of those 39 years as to why he suffered. Or that how God could bring about some purpose. It wasn't until he was providing for his own family that the revelation that I have suffered at the hands of evil so that in this moment, God could help me spare the very ones that sold me into slavery. 
but also including his father. We may not ever understand why we've gone through abuse. There may not be reason to understand or discern in this lifetime why you've suffered abuse. But let's make no mistake. All abuse, when it's being done for the sake of power and control at the expense of another, all abuse is evil and it harms deeply. It's evil and it harms deeply. Secondly, I want to make sure it's abundantly clear that as we've learned from this study and from the other verses I shared, God isn't absent. God isn't powerless. He isn't losing his sovereignty and his control over society. No, there is a plan. He said evil will come and evil will grow, but he is about setting the oppressed free, those who have already been harmed free. He is about redeeming and yes, even transforming the life of the abuser. I give you Paul the apostle. What was he doing? He was beating ruthlessly people who claimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He was killing people if they said they honored Jesus. And yet God transformed even that abuser to a greater glory. Thirdly, whether we see it ever here on this earth or it happens in the future, justice will come to the abuser. Hence the fear that is there. They know it can't be forever that they get away with it. Justice will come. And then I hope you also have learned from this text that even with evil seemingly successful, it is not hindering what God wants to accomplish here on this earth. His goodness, his plan to redeem a people unto himself will happen And the purposes he has for your life, even if you're the damaged one or you're the one that's been damaging other, God can still even fulfill his purposes in you going forward. And true to the situation, if you are the one that has been harming another because you are addicted to power and control, where you've manipulated finances, harming somebody in a vindictive way, or you've used your cultural understanding of Scripture to create ruthless emotional trauma upon your kids or a spouse, or perhaps you are the one that is falsely accused to vindicate yourself from something else that has happened. If you've been the abuser, you need help. And believe it or not, God still wants to transform your life. But I will also say this, the victim who did not choose to suffer this harm, the one who has been hindered, you too, God has heard you, God cares deeply, God wants to restore you, and God wants to restore your freedom. But you need help in the journey. I'm going to provide three phone numbers that you'll see up on the screen now. If you are currently in a situation where you are being abused, that number, 1-888-PREVENT, is a number that you can call at any time 
and get help to be rescued out of a situation of abuse. If you need counsel for some kind of past historic abuse and, and you don't feel comfortable talking to somebody personally, you can call a 24-hour Christian helpline call with, at the number 1-800-982-9032. Or if you're a teenager, a young person, and you feel like you can't talk to somebody that doesn't get you at your stage of life, a youth hotline for you would be 1-800-HIT-HOME. You can't rise out of victimization or being a victimizer alone. You need God in his transformative work. And God also uses his people to bring about the healing. So where a person may have harmed you, at some point you're going to have to take the risk to let a person and the Father God restore you to health. Let's pray. So Father God, I trust that in this moment that those who have maybe been the abuser would be made aware and finally acknowledge their sin, their greed, and their power to control at the cost of someone else, that they would humble themselves and admit the wrong and then seek help. God, I pray that you would do a miracle in that person's life. But God, for the victim, been praying for the victims that are in this room, I pray that you would restore them, that you would help them, and you'd build them up and bring them to a new future in spite of the past. And they'll find that their hope is in Jesus Christ and in his saints that can bring about that restoration. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you need help for one side of this issue or the other, do not hesitate to reach out to one of those numbers that are there or to us. All you have to do is write down on the slip, uh, the insert that we have in the bulletin and just say, please call me. You don't have to say anything else. Provide the number and your name and we'll do so this week. We don't want you going forward without help. That's our desire is to come alongside. We'll also have people up front that will be glad to pray with you underneath the cross. We just want, again, don't want another day of being in the darkness to bring you into light and the hope that is found in Jesus. Let me share this text as a word from God directly to us. It's found in Isaiah chapter 41, and it says this, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. And those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am your Lord, your God, who takes hold of your righteous, of your right hand, and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. That's from God to us. To not fear, because he is there to help. So God, I just pray in Jesus' name. 
that you will help the victim and the victimizer change their life, bring new freedom to the glory of you as the healer and the great helper. Amen. You are dismissed.